that, I'd like to welcome you. Um, this is the class on uh, pests and disease, so if that's not where you want to be, um, you might want to uh, investigate, but uh, we've got a, a, a lot to cover this morning in a short amount of time, so I'd like to get started. Uh, my name is Bob Gregory, and I'm uh, the owner and, and uh, operator of Berea Gardens Agriculture Center, where we do market farming and uh, training and also have a seed bank. And I'll explain a little bit more in a couple of moments as we go along, but I'd like to start with a word of prayer this morning. Father in heaven, I'm grateful for the liberty to assemble here with my brothers and sisters and to discuss uh, this important topic of agriculture. I pray that you'll be with us this morning, that you'll guide me in what I share, and that you'll uh, uh, allow that your Holy Spirit would provide the information to each of these individuals that they need that will be helpful to them too. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Um, a couple of folks were asking me, you know, since I'm talking about bugs, you know, do I really know what I'm talking about or is this just theory? And uh, the reality is that I've been at, at, at this, actively engaged in agriculture for over 50 years. Um, I served uh, for a period of time as, as um, a manage, managing large-scale monoculture agriculture out in the western states. I'm originally from Northern California, uh, Butte County area. Uh, worked for a large seed co-op out there for a number of years, ended up getting a pest control advisor's license and uh, ended up uh, taking extension courses at UC Davis and uh, uh, University of California um, and became an agronomist and uh, worked uh, for a variety of different enterprises out there on a very large scale and did lots and lots of uh, pest and disease Consulting, controlling, and uh, the budgets that were involved were, were enormous. And I'm glad to be free of all that now and to take all of those experiences and uh, the exposures to the, uh, to the nasty stuff that I used to work with and uh, walk away from that and uh, be able to share with you some of the principles that I gleaned because of those purposes. It's interesting, I think, to, uh, to examine sometimes how the Lord prepares us for things. And as I look upon my, my background and my history, even though it was so vastly different than what I'm doing today, uh, those were important preparations for, for, for what I'm sharing with you today. Uh, I want to talk first about plant disease. Plant disease is something that uh, we're all faced with, especially in the humid parts of the country, which is where we are in West Virginia. And um, I think because we have people here from all over the place too, it's really important to recognize that we need to understand what plant disease is. Because oftentimes people complain of what they think is a disease in their plants that's actually not a disease at all. So we have to understand what plant disease is. And the simplest definition of plant disease is any deviation from normal growth that is sufficiently pronounced and permanent to cause impaired quality or value. Now that can be a lot of different things. But the first thing that we need to know is, according to that definition, is what is normal? And frankly, that's a little more complicated than it may sound because plants have the uh, capacity to express what's called a, an ecotype. And essentially the same plant grown in a slightly different environment can express itself very, very differently. Uh, the slide here shows an example of four different ecotypes. These plants are all normal, it's the same plant, but it's normal but under different growing conditions. 
And, and, you know, an example that I can give you is if I took one of the tropical plants here from Florida up to where I live in West Virginia and stuck it in my backyard, it's probably not going to do very well. And this is true even in microenvironments and in, in, in small geographic areas. So, you know, if you're growing a, a broccoli, for example, and you're looking at the, at the picture on the seed catalog of the broccoli head that they're, that they're showing you, which is usually the ideal, and your broccoli doesn't quite measure up to that, you may think that you've got a problem when you don't really have a problem at all. Your plant is simply expressing the ecotype for the environment that it's in. And this is one of the reasons why we have globalized agriculture today because portions of the planet have been identified where uh, you know, the food crops that we grow grow um, most efficiently and most successfully. If you go to the Salinas Valley of California, all you're going to see is some lettuce and, and strawberries these days. And most of the lettuce that, that is consumed in, in, in the United States today comes from only two different growing regions. That's because those two growing regions provide the best ecotype for the market. So don't, uh, you know, don't, don't shame yourself for having a problem when you don't have a problem. Just understand that plants do have different ecotypes. If your carrots, your carrots aren't growing the way they do in the seed catalog, it could be because you're just in a, in a climate and in an environment where a normal carrot is different than what the picture says, okay? We have both living causes of plant disease and unliving causes of plant disease. Uh, the biotic causes of plant disease are the ones that we're usually most concerned about. We think of things like fungi, bacteria, virus, nematodes, uh, parasitic plants uh, as, as being problems when it comes to disease. But we also have a lot of abiotic causes of plant disease, things like temperature, too high or too low, uh, light, too intense or too much shade, uh, water, too much, too little, soil nutrition, anomalies with air, water, and soil uh, pollution and mechanical damage are, are, are all examples of, of abiotic causes of plant disease. And in order to really get a handle on what's going on in our gardens, we've got to have the capacity to, to, to understand that there's a wide range of things that could be going on out there. You know, I often get a, 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 a pulled aside in the foyer of the church on, on Sabbath morning and someone will whisper in my ear, Bob, you know, my, my uh, tomato plants, the leaves on the bottom part of my tomato plants are turning brown. What do I spray? And, you know, that frankly really annoys me <laughs> because there's oh, a, a, about a thousand different variations as to why those leaves could be brown. And I have no idea. It's like walking into the doctor's office saying, Doc, I've got a headache. What's wrong with me? And he doesn't know whether you've got a brain tumor or you're just dehydrated. He's got to go through some steps to, to diagnose what the issue is. And in order to go through those steps, we have to understand the history of the crop. It's very important to know things about what was growing in that field previously to the crop that's growing there. What the weather has been historically up until the, the, the problem developed itself. We want to know if any you know, uh, particular fertilizer treatments were made in that area or weren't made in that area that were made in other areas. The same protocols that we go through in trying to solve medical problems for ourselves are the protocols that we follow in trying to diagnose what plant diseases and plant issues are. And ultimately, there are uh, uh, options for, for actually testing the plant, sending a portion to the plant to the laboratory to identify whatever the pathogen might be that is causing the issue or causing the problem. So, 
you know, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want you to underestimate the power of prayer in all of this because really, as we approach our gardens, whether we're, uh, we're just doing uh, a regular, uh, you know, uh, tasks in, in maintenance and, and in the production of what's going on, or we're out there specifically to address a problem, it's very important to pray before we go to our gardens. And in terms of pests and disease, it's extremely important to pray for the protection of our gardens. You know, when, when we're working out there in the garden, we're, we're, we're engaged in an activity that Satan does not want us to engage in. He does everything that he can to, to, to discourage us. And society as well, because of the, uh, the way the, the seed catalogs airbrush all of the, the items that they have pictured there. And when we plant our crop, if it doesn't come up to the standard of what that picture is, we think we've done something wrong. We've got opportunities for a sense of failure all along the line. And granted, there are opportunities for genuine failure. But we want to recognize that discouragement is the enemy's number one way of keeping us from doing what it is that we've been called to do. So please be aware of that and prayerfully approach uh, things in your garden. When you have uh, issues to deal with in your garden, pray about those issues. Ask for insight. But by all means, on a daily basis, uh, usually twice a day, we pointedly pray for the protection of our crops. And I think that's one of the reasons why we've had such great success. We have seen evidence of the Lord moving on our behalf when Neighbors' crops all around us have been devastated with cucumber beetles. Uh, there have been seasons where we haven't seen a, a single cucumber beetle. And my neighbor will ask me, you know, well, what are you spraying, Bob? I'm not spraying anything. Well, what are you doing? We're praying. No, come on, really, what are you doing? Uh, no, we're seriously, we're just praying. And uh, it's been quite a witness to a number of our neighbors within the community to share that too. Whenever we enter our gardens, we should be observant, we should be looking for what's going on, and those, those skills of observation are very important to cultivate, but there's something that always should be in our minds, in our gardens, when it comes to uh, uh, being sensitive to pests and disease, and that's what I call the disease triangle. That's what's written up here. In order for us to have disease problems in our garden, three things have to come together. We have to have a host for the problem, for the disease or the pathogen. We have to have the right environment for the pathogen. And we have to have the, pres the, the presence of the causal agent or the pathogen itself. All three of those things have to be in harmony for disease to take place. So consequently, this gives us three different opportunities to manage disease. And most of the time, we're only looking at one. And the major strategy for controlling diseases in agriculture today is to attack the pathogen, to call in the B-52 bombers and nuke the pathogen. Bob, what do I spray with is a question I frequently hear. And I really don't like that question because this, although it's commonly the first tactic that people, lay, uh, people take, and although it's the tactic that the nurseries where you buy your supplies from love you to take because the markup on their pesticide products is enormous, uh, this should be our last result, our final result. And that's why I use the analogy of the B-52 with the nuke because that's a serious step 
if you're spraying your crops, it's a serious step. And it's an indication that you really have failed in two other potential areas of controlling pests or disease. And that is to manage the host or manage the environment. Um, what do I mean by managing the host? The first and foremost line of defense when it comes to plant disease is our crop selection. Selecting plants that have genetic resistance or natural resistance to the pathogens that we know are in our environment. All right, how are you going to know what pathogens are in your environment if you're a novice gardener? Well, one of the best resources that you have as a, as, as a novice gardener are the farmer's markets in your local area. Because if you pay attention, we talked about seeds in the last segment, if you want to know what to grow, go to the farmer's markets, find out what they're growing. Because they're probably growing things that are suitable for your climate, for your area, that have disease resistance characteristics for your given area. And farmers love to talk about what they do and how they do it and why they do it. And most of them would be very happy to share with you information about how to select varieties for, for, for uh, you know, the, the conditions that you have there. Plant selection by far and away the number one concern when it comes to dealing with, with diseases. The genetic variation within crops is enormous. And the wrong varieties and the wrong environment can guarantee that you're going to have disease problems every year. So understanding this is really important. Other ways that we can manipulate the host have to do with plant spacing. If we are in an area where we have lots of moisture and we're crowding our tomatoes too close together so that there's not a free movement of air through the, through the tomatoes, that's going to increase the amount of humidity. And uh, plant spacing is, is, is an option that we have for manipulating the host too. Orienting our rows is a way of manipulating the host so that our rows are oriented so that there's the maximum air movement through the rows of crops that we're growing so that they dry out faster after a heavy dew in the morning. These are all examples of, of manipulating the host. Our environment, you know, if we're growing outside, we've got a, a very few choices about what we can do to manipulate the environment. But one of the most important ways that we impact the environment in agriculture is how we irrigate, how we manage our water. And in areas where fungal diseases are the biggest problem, and I'm, I know I'm kind of harping here on fungal diseases, but they really are the first and foremost prob pr problem in agriculture. Uh, fungal disease, particularly uh, water mold diseases, uh, damage more crops uh, by far than any insect problem. And the fungal disease issues are the reasons why so many pesticides are used on our food today. And for every pound of insecticides that, that's used on the planet to produce food today, about 10 pounds of fungicide is used. So it is the most serious problem in, in, in crop production, both post-harvest and, and pre-harvest. But managing our water can be an important tactic, an important avenue for how we deal with plant disease because if we're in a, an area where there is lots of humidity and lots of moisture, uh, using something like drip irrigation or soaker hoses can be an advantage where we're not keeping the foliage of that plant wet any longer than necessary. 
and sprinkler irrigation in an area that is high in humidity is usually pretty not, not a pretty good idea because you're going to continue to extend the period of time that that foliage is wet. And some diseases like Botrytis cinerea only need six hours of a saturated surface in order to germinate. If you can break that six-hour cycle, you will never have that problem. And, uh, you know, there are other uh, pathogens, too, that have similar characteristics. But the longer period of time that the plant stays wet, the greater your risk of infection from fungal diseases, particularly water moles. So, you know, developing strategies, if you must use sprinkler irrigation, for example, do it at night when the dew has fallen and the plants are wet anyway and you don't extend the period of time that the plants are wet. Uh, things like pruning the lower uh, branches of your uh, tomato plants will be helpful in reducing problems with late blight so that you know, the, the disease typically starts at the bottom of the plant and migrates up because the bottom of the plant is what dries out last. And uh, you know, there are lots of, of questions that I get about mulching tomato plants. And if you're going to mulch tomato plants in a wet environment, don't use an organic mulch. Use, use a heavy paper mulch uh, the, uh, or, or, or some other method to, of, of, of mulch that does not hold and retain moisture. Uh, in fact, where we are in West Virginia, we have so much humidity in the summer and heavy dews, I don't mulch at all. I like bare ground under my tomato plants so that they dry out quickly. And I strip the lower leaves up to about 18 inches on those plants to keep them up off the ground and keep them dry. Those are some examples of, of how to make use of this disease triangle. But realistically, if you are uh, plagued with problems and are not... Um, uh, you know, not successful in having to pull out the spray bottle all the time. Uh, it's helpful to have this, this disease triangle in mind because you're missing lots of opportunities for controlling problems before they even occur. And the reality is that um, in, in making use of, of the disease triangle, especially in terms of applying this to pest pressure, uh, we've been able to go through the last four years on our farm without applying any fungicide and without applying a single insecticide, whether organic or otherwise. We haven't sprayed anything on our farm for four years, and we haven't had significant crop loss either. And part of the reason for that is because I've employed the things that I'm sharing with you this morning. Now, this requires understanding um, and experience in your gardens, it, it means paying attention to lots of the subtleties in your garden, and that means that you have to sharpen your observation skills because you need awareness for what's going on out there, and you need the Holy Spirit to help you and assist you if you don't have a lot of experience in doing this. But by keeping that disease triangle in mind when you're out in the garden and developing these skills, over time, you will come to a comprehension of what's happening in your garden that you won't otherwise. If you follow the treadmill of, of, of uh, you know, of the worldly method of agriculture today, it's a, it's a treadmill that puts you on a, on a continual process of looking for that ideal product to spray on your gardens. And frankly, even most organic gardeners that I encounter today are no better at this than conventional growers. They're still looking for what to spray on our gardens. They're using the same paradigm. They're just using a different set of materials to accomplish uh, the, the task. And if we are, are, are focused and if we uh, learn prayer and sharpen our powers of observation, we'll find that we can head off most problems in the garden before they become a problem. 
And you know, one of the things that I suggest too is we consider gardening oftentimes, especially you with you, you families with younger children, we, we consider it to be a social time. And, and there, is, there is a place for that. There's no question about that. It can be a great opportunity for the family to get out there and, 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 and to work together and to really enjoy fellowship and the joy of the garden. But there is a time when we simply need quiet, focused time with the Holy Spirit in the garden individually. That's essential to me, and that's going to be essential to you in allowing the Holy Spirit to divert your attention to those areas in the garden that need improvement. That's how he teaches us and instructs us. There have been many, many times when in the morning I've gone out through the garden after prayer, you know, prayerfully approaching it, and the Holy Spirit has directed my attention to something that would have otherwise escaped my attention whether it's a, a, a small insect outbreak or the first evidence of maybe a spot in the garden that's too wet that has some susceptibility to fungal disease, your attention will be drawn. And as you gain experience over time uh, and, and build on that experience, the Holy Spirit is there to help you. You know, we've heard a number of messages this morning talking about the importance of agriculture in education and in our lives. And I am firmly convicted over time that Agriculture is a necessary component of all of our lives. I'm not saying that we're all called to be full-time farmers, but we are all called to agriculture. I think that's necessary for us because there are so many lessons in agriculture that we can't learn any other way. And one of them is, is that humble, quiet opportunity to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us. And we need that every day. I think it's as, it's as important to me to spend devotional time in the garden every day as it is to spend devotional time in God's Word. And I'm not talking about being out there for three or four hours every day. Now, I'm called to agriculture. It's my vocation. And not all of us are called to that. Many of you are called to other tasks and other duties. And because it's my calling doesn't mean it needs to be your calling too. But even at times when I have opportunity to be doing other things, I'll, I'll always spend a thoughtful 20 or 30 minutes in the garden every day. I need that. It's part of what, what, what strengthens me. It, 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 it's part of what keeps me connected to the Holy Spirit. And when I don't have that time, it's just like the, the, the days that I get up and I don't dive into the Word of God for 15 or 20 minutes and establish my connection for the day. I get really disjointed. I'm out of sorts. Things just don't seem right. And for me, it's as important to have that devotional time in the garden as it is to be in God's Word. And especially if we want assistance in these times in dealing with the ever-increasing problems that we're faced with, because the problems of pests and diseases are increasing astronomically. You know, most of you are probably aware that, you know, among human diseases, we see a dramatic increase in various different things going on. The same thing is happening in the natural world. There are no less than 10 absolutely novel fungal diseases that have stricken agriculture in the last five years. That means these things have never been seen before. There are numbers of viruses that are striking agricultural crops that have never been identified before. Pests are increasing in virulence, and because of our globalized economy, we have more invasive species now than ever. Uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, the marmated stink bug is just now inv in, invading West Virginia. It's coming down from Pennsylvania, and it's, it's, it's a serious plague for us that wasn't there just two or three years ago. 
So we need the cooperation of the Holy Spirit in order to have success, lest we rely on the worldly methods of producing poison and not food. And that inquires, requires quiet time for each of us in the garden too. The other thing I'm gonna to suggest to some of you um, is, is journaling in the garden. If you're new to agriculture, a journal can be very, very helpful. And I don't mean just keeping a diary so that you can refer to it uh, you know, next year to see what you did on, on, on that day the year before because agricultural calendars and, and our, our annual calendar are not the same thing. It's, 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 it's not a matter of establishing a routine or looking back to see what you did before. It's simply to help you sharpen your skills of observation. If you're out there in the garden and you're jotting down, you know, what conditions you see, what the weather is that day, uh, what, uh, you know, what's happening, it, it just, it, it helps to condition your mind to be more observant. It gives you a, a, a reason to observe what's out there and can kind of help keep you focused too. And it can be a, a really helpful tool to, uh, to increase your, your, your opportunities to, uh, to observe. I think of all the things that I did um, you know, in, in the course of my career, one of the things that, that made me very valuable to growers was that I had almost innately a really excellent um, uh, set of skills and observation that the Lord gave to me. And I would see things that other people didn't see. And because of that, I was able to head off problems for growers and save them lots and lots of dollars. And, and that's part of what made me valuable uh, in the agriculture industry. And over time, uh, I've been amazed myself at how the Lord has revealed things to me that are really quite subtle in the garden. And it's because I've cultivated that, that power of observation. I want to go back to this slide for just a minute to emphasize that fungi are the single biggest uh, problems that we face in the garden. Uh, far and away here in the eastern part of the United States, I've seen diseases here on, on, on a large scale that I never even saw out on the west coast. Uh, but fungal diseases are, 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 are something to, to, to really concern yourself with here. And that means managing uh, that disease triangle from all three sides, really. And that means, uh, you know, selecting varieties that are resistant to fungal diseases uh, and uh, managing the host plants in a way that allows for, for uh, you know, optimum air circulation and drying of the plants, whether it's row orientation or row spacing or pruning. Um, it implies that we also want to be very sensible about how we irrigate the plant from the environmental side of it and keep moisture off the leaves as much as possible and in the soil where the, where the roots can use it. Uh, even other things. You know, most fungal diseases uh, break into the plant by brute force. And um, what I mean by that is when, when, the, when the spore germinates, it sends out a little peg that is somewhat like the radical of a seed when it germinates that can actually break through the cell wall and break into the tissue of the plant. And the plant's natural resistance to that invasion, and it's an invasion essentially by brute force, uh, it doesn't require an injury to enter the plant. Um, the, the plant's natural resistance to that, uh, to that brute force entry is the waxy cuticle that's on the surface of the leaf. 
And one of the, the treadmill problems that people get into is they will apply uh, uh, some sort of a protectant or a spray to, to, to protect the plant against fungal infection. Copper is widely used for this. And they damage that waxy cuticle to the point where the fungi actually have quite an easy time breaking into the plant. And they put themselves on a treadmill then of having to make multiple applications of, of sprays, uh, you know, whether they're organic or otherwise, to control the fungal disease. And this is really, um, you know, really kind of a devastating thing to happen. Uh, because you're continually, with each spray application, you're weakening the plant more and more and more. And one of the things that I want to really emphasize to you folks is that any spray application that you make on a plant has side effects. Even grandma's garlic and pepper spray mix for repelling the, the Japanese beetle, it has side effects on your plants. And one of the side effects for most everything, including water, is that you damage that waxy cuticle. At which opens the plant up to potential invasion from, from, from fungi and from bacteria. Yes, sir? Yes, it is. Foliar feeds actually really damage the cuticle because they're salt compounds and they're, they're, they're usually highly chelated compounds that uh, are, are, are intended to penetrate the leaf surface. So, yes, foliar feeds definitely fit into that category. I do not. My philosophy is that if I have the soil chemistry operating properly and I have appropriate moisture in the soil, I should never need a foliar feed. I have, I have some other reasons for, for, for not using foliar feeds too. One of those is that if you become dependent on foliar feeding your plants, your root systems do not grow as uh, elaborately as they should. And if you happen to go through a period of drought, you have a lot more drought stress in plants that are foliar fed. And the texture of the plant, too, at harvest is slightly different. Um, I found that you don't accumulate the minerals inter, in, intercellularly. There's a lot of minerals intracellularly in foliar-fed plants, but, uh, but the shelf life, I think, is diminished, too, to some degree by foliar feeding. So it's not a practice that I make use of. If, if you have a, a nutrient deficiency and you're correcting a deficiency um, and, and you need it done quickly, that's an opportunity to make uh, use of a foliar feed for a specific purpose. Uh, and I'm not opposed to doing that if it's necessary. But as a general course of a production activity, no, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't agree with, uh, with the need for it or the expense. <clears throat> All right. So the, the general consensus that I want to get across here is that we can manipulate our crops to the disadvantage of diseases. And um, when, I, when I evaluate disease in the crop too, um, when it comes to fungal diseases, I want to evaluate that on a, on, on a broad population basis. Um, you know, oftentimes we'll go out into the garden and we'll look at an individual plant and something is wrong with that individual plant, but the rest of the population of the garden looks pretty decent and uh, there may not be problems there. But our focus goes to the, to the struggling plant there. And if we identify that there's a problem there and decide that we're going to bring out the heavy artillery and spray the whole field so the whole field doesn't end up looking like that plant, we can actually end up causing ourselves a lot more harm. We have to be thoughtful and attentive to, to, to recognizing, A, what the plant, what the problem is, B, will the treatment um, for, 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 for the problem that we see 
have a, 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 a more consequential cost than leaving the problem untreated. For example, if the plant looks a little bit sick, can we just pull that plant out and eradicate it from the field or do we need to spray the whole field? If you're spraying the whole field, there's the cost to the future health of that plant because of damaging the waxy cuticle. Uh, there's other costs for the side effects of the, of the spray material. There's the cost of the spray material itself and the time that you're using to do that. So these are all things that need to come into your, into your you know, evaluation process before you pull out that weapon and start shooting. Uh, again, plant selection is the most important uh, thing that we can do to avoid problems with disease. Plant timing is also very important. And by timing, what I mean is when you put the plant in the ground. Uh, we have horribly humid, hot, and miserable July weather in West Virginia. And we tend to plant our tomatoes early so that we can get an early crop to market, but those plants, once a plant fruits, by the way, it's a lot more susceptible to disease than when it's in a juvenile phase. So once we push those tomato plants to get our early crop to market, I can almost count on the fact that those tomato plants are gonna absolutely collapse in July. Usually by then we've got the first flush of fruit off, we pick some of our tomatoes for canning, and the plants may still have fruit on them, but we'll get you know, one of those thunderstorms that comes in that drops a 90 degree rain, and, and we've got an 80 degree nighttime temperature, and that disease just explodes. And uh, when, that, when that happens, I, I do something um, most of my neighbors think is a little weird, I pull my plants out. Uh, we get that first flush of fruit off, I pull that crop out and I've got other plants started in the greenhouse that are in a juvenile phase that I then put in the ground in, in, in mid-January and being juvenile they have a lot more resistance to those weather conditions and then by the end of August and into September I've got a flush of good quality tomatoes again. So that's an example of using timing uh, for, for, for uh, crop management too. And we already manage, um, mentioned water management, uh, airflow is very important. Uh, crop rotation is really important. If you're not practicing crop rotation, that's, that's critically important to keep your, your lands, both your soil and your plants healthy. And sanitation is also a good idea in the garden. And by sanitation, what I mean is just keeping things cleaned up, keeping disease materials out of your garden area, uh, you know, keeping it clean and tidy. Um, I, I'm very much a stickler for having an organized, uh, orderly environment in the garden because I need all the help that I can get from, from, from holy angels and uh, they will flee chaos. And uh, you know, this is one of the big differences that I have with my new age friend who's also an organic gardener, but he kind of likes the haphazard, you know, let nature take its course kind of philosophy. And he runs into a lot more problems than I do. And I honestly believe it's because I have the assistance of angels attending me. Was there a question back here? Uh, it depends on, on the disease. That's, that's kind of disease and time uh, specific. I can, I can give you more information on that later. <clears throat> I keep forgetting which button I'm supposed to push here. All right. Okay, so we've, we've discussed kind of the high points there of, of, of getting our disease control. And most people are interested in doing bug control. You know, folks love, either love or hate dealing with insects. And some of my more secular friends love fighting the insects because it gives them a chance to put on that big backpack sprayer and go out there and shoot something. You know, and... Uh, you know, there's, there's perhaps joy in that for them, but it's certainly not my idea of, of, of what I want to do. 
Our, our first line of defense in the garden absolutely is prayer. And I, I, could, I, I could spend probably 45 minutes here giving you testimonies about how we have seen the evidence of praying for the protection of our gardens has, has manifested itself. But it is tangible, it is real, and by all means, do it. Do not avoid this. If you're not going to take this step, don't bother going out in the garden, honestly, because we need that uh, protection and we need that association with the Lord as we go through these activities otherwise it's just factory work folks and uh, we miss out on the blessing that is there for us to have the second most important factor is having healthy plants so I'm going to assume uh, from here on forward that you've um, you know taken the trouble to understand what a healthy soil is and that you've got your nutrients balanced in the soil and that your crops are are healthy and growing properly we're going to uh, eliminate nutrient deficiencies as, as part of our problems here, but healthy plants are more resistant to insect damage. Now, what word did I just use? Did I say immune? I did not say immune. I said they are resistant to insect damage. I have never in the course of my 50-some years of uh, agriculture and crop consulting seen an instance where healthy plants alone provided immunity to insects. And anyone that tells you that, uh, I, would, I would be very suspect uh, uh, to, to know that that's the only thing that needs to be accomplished in order to have healthy plants. It just isn't the case. Healthy plants will be far more resistant to insects. But if there's a hungry bug out there that happens to target your particular crop and your plants are all healthy, uh, he may go for the weakest one among the healthy ones, but he's still going to eat on that plant. Weak plants are more susceptible to insect damage, but healthy ones are not immune, okay? But it does help. What I'm trying to convey here is that just having a healthy soil does not excuse you from the responsibility of having good pest control strategies too. And some people do that, and I don't want you to fall into that pitfall. The most important thing about dealing with pest problems is to know your enemy. Know your enemy. You've got somebody out there that's battling with you for a resource. You're fighting over territory. And if you want to have success in the battle, just as in military situations, you want the best intelligence on the en enemy you can get. You want to know what his life cycle is. You want to know what, it, what kind of mouth parts he has. Is it a, chucking, a sucking insect, a chewing insect, or a rasping insect? You want to scout vigorously and look for the first forward uh, uh, troops that may be infesting your crop. And you want to know all kinds of details about what this insect's life cycle is and what it enjoys and what habitats it likes and what temperatures it likes and when it might appear. And where are you going to find all that information? I'm starting to sound like I'm giving you homework, huh? And that's just the case. If we want to have success in our gardens, we've got to be good students. We heard this morning about the balance between the understanding of the academic aspects of education and the practical aspects of education. And those academic aspects do have a role too, and that comes in digging in and researching what the pests are and what its preferences are in our environment. I say this because, you know, I, 
<laughs> I used to work in the rose industry, and uh, I, I talked to, to homeowners all the time that had a recipe for killing aphids on plants. You know, aphids are little soft-bodied green sucking insects that, uh, that, that love roses. And, you know, everybody I talked to had a, had a home brew for, for controlling aphids. And they would tell me what their home brew was. In many cases, it was really caustic stuff and caused a whole lot more harm to the plant than the aphids would. But, you know, they would look at me with their smiling faces, you know, and, and, and share the recipe. And they say, you know, this stuff really works. And I would just nod my head politely and agree with them. Because I know what the life cycle of the aphid is, and I know that if they didn't do anything, that aphid was going to disappear the next day or within two days anyway. Simply by understanding its life cycle, since all of these insects go through stages of metamorphosis, we need to know what their habits and what their life cycle is and whether they're a problem or not. Uh, insects also have some avenues of potential attack. One of them is a the nervous system. Uh, that's what most pesticides target. Most commercial pesticides target the nervous system with very, very toxic compounds that are neurotoxic to you and I also and are also fat soluble and present quite a serious danger to us. As organic growers, we don't use those things, but they are out there. But even organic growers use some insecticides that target the nervous system. Of, uh, of insects. They have a digestive system too. This provides us an avenue of attack for poisoning the insects. They have a respiration system. They have small holes in their exoskeleton called spiracles that gas simply passes through. And if we plug up those spiracles, we can, we can suffocate them. And they have an exoskeleton. They're skeletons on the outside of the body. And that's an avenue of attack, too, because we can use things like an insecticidal soap to soften up that exoskeleton and really have the insect just collapse on its own under its own weight. This is a harlequin beetle, by the way, in this picture here, for those of you that don't know. What I want to suggest to you in terms of dealing with pests is that you develop a strategy before the gardening season gets here. Decide what strategies you're going to follow and make your plant selection choices also based on those that might have more resistance to insects. And I'm gonna give you an alternative option here in just a minute that you'll see is really kind of interesting. Practice crop rotation. This is really important to keep pest problems reduced. A lot of our garden pests actually overwinter underground. They'll feed on our plants, they'll lay their eggs on their plants, the eggs will hatch, and the insects will pupate, they'll migrate underground as larvae and remain there through the winter and then emerge in the spring. And if we're planting its favorite food right there again, we've just given it a buffet to feast on. So it's important to practice crop rotation. And when I, I, I say crop rotation, I'm talking about rotating crops by families of plants, not rotating from a tomato to a pepper because that's the same family rotating your crops to an entirely different family of plant. That's really important. Crop timing is also a great tool to use in your strategies for insect control. And the example that I'll give you is eggplant. We grow lots of eggplant. We grow fabulous eggplant. The restaurants love it. The CSA that we sell to loves it. Our, our customers love it. And we're the only ones that really succeed in growing nice quality eggplant. 
And the reason for that is that most of the other growers try to get their eggplant in the ground as soon as they can. It's a, it's a heat-loving plant, so they try to put it in after they think the ground has warmed up enough and, and, and you know, so that they can get the crop coming in as soon as possible. And oftentimes that is simultaneous with the emergence of a pest called a flea beetle. And flea beetles absolutely love eggplant. I mean, they will skeletonize it overnight. So what we do is instead of trying to have the first eggplant, we just try to have eggplant. So I wait about three weeks after I see that first emergence of flea beetles to set our eggplants out. Uh, that's, that's after the first generation has gone through its cycle and it has either found a host and reproduced and moved on by then or it has starved to death by then. We set our eggplants out three weeks later than everybody else. We have no pressure from flea beetles. So timing is, is an important tool too that we can make use of in, in scheduling things. Now we don't get the earliest eggplant, but we get the best eggplant and we get it for a long season into the fall. So it works very well for us. The next method I want to mention is one that I'm really excited about, and this is trap cropping. Uh, this is a term that applies to using a plant to attract the pest to keep it from consuming the plant that you want to produce. And this is not my idea, but I've, I've worked with this pretty extensively over the years and I started applying these, these methods in West Virginia and I got West Virginia Extension Service and West Virginia University really interested in this and they've actually uh, funded a $100,000 study around the state to demonstrate the effectiveness of trap cropping on curcurbit crops. And uh, essentially what we, what we do is we have set up field trials all around the state using uh, a host crop that I know is susceptible to, the, uh, to a cabbage looper. Uh, we're, we're, we're growing broccoli, a uh, gypsy uh, variety of broccoli. <clears throat> and we're using as a trap crop Jersey Wakefield cabbage because I've noticed over time that if I put a cabbage plant about every 50 feet down the row in my broccoli, that the cabbage loopers, the adults, will lay their eggs on the cabbage and leave the broccoli alone. And they're absolutely gonna destroy that cabbage plant, but I know that that's gonna be the case. And once it's fully infested, I just cut it off and drop it in a bucket of soapy water. But by using the, the, the interplanting of the trap crop within the crop that I'm growing, I've been able to go for four years now without using any insecticide whatsoever on the farm. And we're kind of excited about that. I've got examples of trap crops with, with, with broccoli and other uh, uh, brassicas, but we also have trap crops for some of the beans that we grow. And uh, you know, what, what we're trying to get dialed in on is the exact relationship between the pest, the microenvironment that we're in, and the varieties that we are growing. Because, uh, you know, I, I could give you a list of what I'm using, but I'm reluctant to do that because the trap crop only works for the specific varieties of food crops that I am growing. Um, uh, in, in, uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm growing, uh, you know, Waltham broccoli instead of gypsy broccoli, I don't get the same, I don't get the same effect. So this is something that we have to be, uh, become experienced with over time. Again, our skills of observation are important. 
But if you should happen to plant, uh, you know, I, I, I suggest we all plant test varieties every year too. And if you plant a test variety of a bean, for example, that ends up being a magnet for the Mexican bean beetle and, and is something that you realize you can't grow for a commercial crop, uh, don't despair because you've just discovered a new trap crop that maybe can help you protect your other varieties of plants. And we use trap crops extensively. I have trap crops that I use in the high tunnels. I have them uh, that I use outdoors too uh, for uh, beans and for uh, curcurbit uh, family stuff. Uh, we have trap crops for aphids and our, our lettuce varieties that we grow in the high tunnel. And uh, it's th th this is an area that's really under, uh, under investigated. And I'm really excited to see that uh, UVA has uh, or, or, or WVA has um, uh, chosen to, to invest a little money in helping us to figure out some ways that we can make this strategy work better. Did you have a comment? Do you, do, you use intercropping for the beans as well? Yeah, about every 50 feet. What I've found on our farm is if I put the, the trap crop about every 50 feet down the row, that that's adequate spacing. I don't need to do it any closer than that. Well, yeah, generally, uh, you know, it, it's going to get infested, so you know, I want to dispose of it so it doesn't doesn't spread. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been a very effective means for us. Means for us. Uh, yes, another question. Well, you know, again, go back to what I said earlier, and that is to know your enemy. Our enemies have life cycles, and if the first life cycle happens to occur when I'm when I'm putting my seedling crops out there. I'm going to plant my trap crop at the same time as my seedling crops. It may become very badly infested. I may have to pull that plant and put another one back in its place. Um, you know, uh, the practical application of this is I always have a few seedlings of my trap crops growing in the event that one gets uh, totally infested. I need to replant for a subsequent cycle of that insect. But you've got to time your plantings in the insect cycles also. Uh, to get the maximum benefit from this. But oftentimes I'll simply plant the, the cabbage the same time I plant my broccoli. The cycle of cabbage looper works its way through and uh, you know by the time the larvae are, are, are totally infesting that head of cabbage, the pressure uh, from the adults laying eggs is gone. So I just destroy the cabbage and, and, and just do it one time. So it's, 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 you know, it's a, a matter of observing and, and paying attention to what, what's going on. Um, I recommend uh, as part of your strategy that even though I haven't sprayed for four years for any insects on my, on my farm, and when we do spray we use organic materials, I still have the organic materials to spray if I need to. Uh, and this is really important, you know. You don't want to be a warrior going into battle whose arsenal is is, you know, five days away mail order or down at the local uh, nursery supply store, which might be a two-hour drive. You need those things when you need them. So always keep, always keep your, your, your materials uh, fresh and, and, and ready to go even though you don't need them. I've thrown out a lot of pesticides over the last few years because I, I maintain this policy that I want to have the dipel when I need it. I want to have the fungicides when I need them. But uh, by God's grace, if I don't use them, uh, about every five years, I'll, I'll take them to the, uh, to the local waste disposal uh, site for those things and, and refresh the, the supplies so that it stays viable. Uh, but I don't want to be caught without it in the event that I need it. You had a question? 
I well, there's there's benefit. Uh, let me let me talk about predators here for a minute. Um, I'm I'm not one that subscribes to buying predatory insects for release in your gardens. I did a lot of work with UC Davis with ladybugs and and aphids in the nursery industry, and what we discovered is it's not very cost effective because in order for um, you know in order to have a sufficient population of predators. Um, you, you have to have a sufficient population of pests already well established. That means that you're sustaining some damage before you introduce the predators. And then as the predators consume the pest, the population of the pest drops and then the predator population drops and you can never get these cycles in balance. So you're always dealing with a level of insect pressure that is unacceptable in most cases. And this occurred both indoors, in greenhouse environments, and outdoors. Now, some high-scale hydroponic greenhouses uh, simply use a method of, of predators. When they notice they have a problem, they'll release the predators into the environment, and they consider that, a, you know, that's kind of a one-shot deal. They know those predators are going to be gone, and they invest a lot of money in, in doing that. It's expensive, but, but people appreciate it because they, uh, they're not spraying their crops. I'm not a big advocate for, for introducing predators, but what I am a big advocate for is maintaining a lot of biological diversity around your gardens that can host uh, natural predators. And that can be done a variety of different ways. And, you know, where we are, we live in the middle of the woods in West Virginia. So we've got, you know, we're, we're surrounded by thousands of acres of very diverse environment. Uh, in, in more developed and urban and monoculture areas, planting a diversity of species for, for landscape plants can help with that, yes. All right. Um, the other thing I want to mention just briefly, we're, we're getting a little bit short on time here, but I want to talk a little bit about repellents too. There's a lot of products out there uh, that, are, that are being sold today. And, and kind of, I'm, I'm, you know, after selling tens of thousands of pounds of pesticides over, over the course of my career, I've, I've kind of reached the point where I'm just not a product guy. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not big on trying the newest or the latest thing. I, I know too much about the industry. I know too much even about the natural stuff that's used. And my choice is just not to use it. Uh, I, I, I'm not saying that has to be your conviction because, frankly, we, uh, we have a responsibility to care for our crops. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not at all interested in the newest stuff. And most of it is marketing and very little substance. And that's true, as I told some of you yesterday, with a lot of the inoculants that are being sold today for, uh, for improving your soil. And it's very true with, with things like repellents in, in the gardening industry. Um, most of them are not worth uh, the investment. Um, and uh, although they may work for a brief period of time, uh, their residual potential to, to keep things working just isn't there. And uh, I haven't found them to be cost effective. I'm trying to advance my slide here. It's not advancing. Cavell, thank you, Cavell. <coughs> um, I, I, I say that, and I say we have a responsibility to care for our plants, and with this slide, we'll, we'll, we'll close the presentation. But this is from Selected Messages, Book 3, page 321. And, you know, when, when I was teaching agriculture at a university or a college, and uh, uh, we had a number of students that were, uh, uh, you know, very... Um, dedicated uh, students of the, of the Spirit of Prophecy, when they first read this, their jaws just about hit the floor. And uh, 
this came from Selected Messages, book three, page 329, where she wrote, this earth has been cursed because of sin, and in these last days, vermin of every kind will multiply. These pests must be killed, or they will annoy and torment and even kill us, and destroy the work of our hands and the fruit of our land. In places, there are ants, which entirely destroy the woodwork of houses. Should not these be destroyed? Fruit trees must be sprayed, that the insects which would spoil the fruit may be killed. God has given us a part to act, and this part we must act with faithfulness. Then we can leave the rest with the Lord. Now, certainly Ellen White was an organic grower, right? She must have been using organic sprays here. Well, frankly, they hadn't been developed at that time, and many of the common compounds that were in use in and uh, in, in, in the period of time when this was written were things like lead arsenate and mercury-based uh, compounds that were used as insecticides, heavy potent nicotine compounds, things that were very, very highly toxic and highly neurotoxic. And yet what she's saying here is we have to weigh the benefit of the food against the potential hazard or the risk of what we're applying to that food. And that's what each of us has to do as an individual. That's why I can't be your conscience and say, look, you know, don't spray with that. Uh, if, if, you, uh, you know, if you have the, the information necessary to make an intelligent decision and you choose to spray for that, I'm not going to stand in judgment of you. Um, my choice is not to spray anything, but that's because that's my choice. That's my perspective. I've had so much exposure over the course of my life, I have health issues because of it. That doesn't need, mean that you don't, have to, to take actions that you deem appropriate. As long as it's prayerfully done, I think the Holy Spirit will lead you and guide you to what needs to be done. But don't make the term organic production holy to you. This is, I think, a potential pitfall for many people as we, we, we want to demonstrate that we want to please the Lord, we want to do things according to His will, we want to do things His way, but there's kind of an extra step that some folks take that, that kind of make what we're doing holy in the sense that we're only going to use the open pollinated varieties and not use the hybrids. We're only going to use the, you know, the tested uh, organically certified stuff on our crops instead of that terrible poison that they make out there, even though some of the organically certified stuff is just as toxic. Uh, we, 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 we don't want to deceive ourselves. So, you know, if we approach it prayerfully with the right motives, we understand that gardening is not just a physical exercise, but a spiritual experience too. The Holy Spirit is there to cooperate with us and will guide us into His truth. Thank you very much. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.